some people were very good with it and, and not afraid and, and, and not afraid to kind of get in there and say the things that were difficult or that were messy or that might uh, be the wrong thing. And then others, you know, would say nothing because they were afraid to say something or afraid to say the wrong thing. And so it was really difficult. And I found myself getting very, that was one thing that really kind of riled me if, if I met somebody and they didn't say anything. You know, because I felt like my whole world had changed and I had changed completely. Um, and when people would just act like nothing had happened, act the same, I, I, I couldn't bear it. I found that really, really difficult. Um, whereas the friends who, who were okay to talk about it, you know, I, I could do the small talk and the chit chat with those people because I knew if I needed to talk about something bigger, I could, you know, um, and that, that they always had it in the forefront of their minds that this awful thing had happened and that everything I did was in the context of this awful stuff that I was going through. Liz Gleason, and you're listening to Shapes of Grief. Shapes of Grief is a curation of stories from ordinary people on their experience of loss, how their grief impacted them, and what helped them to find their feet again. Loss can really have such a profound effect on our lives, and it is my hope that Shapes of Grief will provide comfort, hope, and inspiration to our listeners so that together we can get more comfortable talking about grief. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a patron of Shapes of Grief on patreon.com. This is a listener-supported podcast, so please do donate, like, share and review. It really does keep us going. For more grief resources and grief support, find and follow us on all the usual social media channels and on shapesofgrief.com. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of Shapes of Grief. Today I'm joined by Kath Monaghan. Kath, you're very, very welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so some of you may have come across an article that Kath wrote for the Irish Times back in May. Um, a very poignant article, Kath, you wrote about coming back to Ireland, having heard the news that your brother had died suddenly. Yes. And it was a beautiful article. Did you, Thank you. get a lot of feedback from that? Or? I did, yes, I did. Uh, and I, I think initially I had written it a while ago and and then I, I sent it in and um, the, the night before I kind of was thinking, oh my gosh, what have I done? You know, and the morning, but then actually I had, I did have a lot of lovely feedback that made me feel glad I'd done it in the okay. end. Yeah. So we'll go back a few steps first. Um, yep. You're born and raised in Ireland in yes. Wicklow. Yes. And when did you move to Australia then? Uh, so I, I first moved to Australia when I was 13 and lived there for four years and then came back to Ireland. And then I went back when I was 22. And I was there for five years. And then I came back to Ireland for a while. And then I went back to Australia for another 10 years. And now I'm back here. So it was during that second stint uh, in my 20s that my brother died. Okay. Yeah. So what exactly happened, Kath? Well, he, uh, he died really suddenly and the, he hadn't been sick, hadn't, uh, it was completely unexpected. He, he woke up 
in the morning and it didn't feel great and he collapsed and he died. So we, many years later we found out that we have a, 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 a hereditary cardiac, electric, it's an le electrical abnormality of the heart, a condition called long QT syndrome. But at the time we didn't know anything about that and it was really only, it, he'd, he's dead almost 20 years now and it was really only about seven years ago maybe that we found out, you know, that we kind of put two and two together and realised that we had this condition in our family. And when you say we, who exactly do you mean yourself and your other brother? So, uh, so my mom started, somebody said something to my mom about it and she started looking into it, kind of looking back, he'd had a few blackouts as a teenager and my mom's mother had died suddenly when my mom was a baby. And uh, so unexplained, you know, un unexplained sudden deaths like that often can be due to this sudden adult death syndrome, which is, you know, kind of a, a number of different electrical abnormalities. And so, but it, it doesn't show up on an autopsy because it's an electrical abnormality. It can only be seen in somebody who is living. Okay. So it will show up on an ECG often. Um, but, and some people have symptoms, lots of people don't have symptoms. Uh, so an autopsy was done on my brother, but nothing really was found. Okay, so, and how did they test you for that then? So an ECG first, and then it, it usually will show up on an ECG, but not always. And so then, so I had an ECG, it did show up on an ECG for me. And then they also do stress test where you are, go on a treadmill and you have, you're hooked up to uh, a, an ECG, an our cardiac monitor at the same time. And so usually it will show up during then, during that time. And then lots of people will also have a gene that'll indicate that they've got, uh, you know, one of, there's a number of different types of long QT syndrome, depending on what gene you have. So we also had genetic testing done. So genetic testing is great because, the, you know, if you, if you show up with the gene, at least you can check other members of your family as well and kind of know definitively whether they also have it or not. Some people don't have a gene and so, that, you know, they just need their, their children maybe just need to have regular ECGs to see if anything is changing. Okay. Yeah. So. Okay. Yeah, but we had we had did detect a gene in our family, so yeah. we were able to test everybody, and so that of course opened a whole other can of worms. I can only imagine. Yeah. And let's come back to that, but first I'd love to hear a bit more about you know your family growing up. There was yeah. three of you, is that correct? Yes. So I'm the eldest. I have two younger brothers. So. One. And the, the the title of the article was. Well, my, my original title of the article was just Two Brothers, but the, okay. yes, the Irish Times dramatised it a little. Brothers were inseparable yes, until, right, one, died, until that one died. Yes, that's right, until one died, yeah. But my original yeah. title was just Two Brothers, but I'm sure, you know, that wasn't, that wouldn't have been great clickbait okay. on that. Oh dear, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. Um, yes, so they were very close because I was four years older. I was four years when my next brother was born, but there was less than two years between them. So they were very close. They, you know, always shared a bedroom, you know, until they moved out of home. They'd moved out not long before uh, Tony died. So, but they'd always shared a bedroom and, you know, they weren't in the same year at school, but they would have, you know, shared their friends and they were always together really. So. Um, so they were a lot more than siblings. They, they shared a friendship and a friend. Yeah, they did. Circle of friends you as know. well. Yeah, they did. I mean, yeah. they used to kill each other as well, of course. But, uh, you know, they, yeah, they were together all the time, really. So yeah. back to Australia, where you're living with mm. your husband, Dara, and your son. Yes. And what happened? You got a call? Yeah, so at that time, I didn't have uh, my son at that stage. It was just myself and Dara. And we had uh, a couple of friends staying with us at the time. 
so we had uh, we were heading off with volleyball. I think it was Tuesday night. We played volleyball on Tuesday nights, and uh, yeah, my husband came home, came in the door, and I remember kind of looking up and seeing him at the door, and I knew from his face that something wasn't right and he kind of came in and said I've, I, something has happened and you know my initial reaction I, I, I just I, I had a really unexpected it wasn't how I imagined I would react in that situation but my I had a very physical kind of you know I, I kind of pulled my knees up towards me and put my arms out and was just kind of blocking him you know don't, don't tell me I don't what is it I, I was kind of saying what is it but I don't want to know you know don't tell me and Anyway, um, I thought he was going to say something about one of my parents. And then he said that, you know, that Tony was dead. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe what he was saying. I knew what he was saying. And I was saying to him, I know what you're saying to me. I can hear those words, but I, that can't be right. You know, I, can't, I cannot believe that that could be true. It was just too surreal and too shocking. Yeah, it was, just seemed ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. You know, what, uh, just ridiculous. Really, it was the only word I can think of, you know. Um, so I knew logically what he was saying, but I couldn't actually take it in. I, and, and, you know, and I know you hear people say this, but actually I almost wanted to laugh at it because it was seen so ridiculous, you know. And even though I was, you know, my heart was pounding and I was thinking this is really bad, everything is changing. But at the same time, it just seemed like nonsense, mm. you know. Profound loss can rock our inner world. It's confusing, life-altering, and often scary. You've probably already figured out that there are no stages of grief. But are there other models, theories, tools, or practices that can help us to navigate the grieving process? To learn more, visit shapesofgrief.com. As Liz says, the more people who are grief-trained, the more supportive and compassionate our society will be. And that will make life so much better for anyone coping with loss and grief. Now, let's get you back to the podcast. It's interesting how that happens, how we've levels of acceptance or levels of processing something. Like we get it, we hear those yeah. words, but it, th there's different levels of understanding. So yeah. what you're saying is it hadn't quite hit reality. Yes, I knew it in my head. I knew what he was yeah. saying, but it wasn't, I, I couldn't feel it properly. You know, yeah. and it didn't, it, I think it took a long time. So you couldn't feel it emotionally, couldn't but physically, feel it emotionally. you had to say your heart was pounding. That's right, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was, it was a fear feeling almost, you know, something yeah. bad was happening, but I couldn't quite take in what it was, you know. So your body went into fight or flight mode, almost yeah, into stress. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're in Australia, what was the first thing you did? Yeah, well, I mean, this was, you know, almost 20 years ago. So we didn't have a computer at home. We didn't have, we couldn't go online and book flights. This was, the, this was uh, you know, a Tuesday evening. And it was a Monday or a Tuesday evening anyway, but it was evening. And I, so I rang my parents, obviously straight away. My mom had phoned Dara at work because she didn't want to phone me. So she had phoned him at work so that he could come home and tell me. And so obviously he was, you know, really quite traumatized as well. He'd had this conversation with my mom and had to drive home. So she had the foresight to want to have somebody with you. Yes, yes. So yes, despite she, her own shock, she was able to take care of you from a distance yeah, to a degree. You're yeah. always a parent, I suppose, yeah. you know, and, um, and she didn't want to, I, I think she didn't want me to be told over the phone either, I suppose, you know, so, um, 
so I got on the phone, rang my parents and, you know, who of course kind of confirmed what had happened. And, you know, I was kind of getting a, a, a version of events, but it had only just happened. And so everyone was kind of quite confused by it all because it was so sudden and so shocking. And as I say, kind of ridiculous, you know, that this had happened. So I spoke to my parents and I, I don't really remember that much of that conversation. Um, and I'm sure that they were probably trying to comfort me, even though I, 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 I don't really recall if I cried or, or what happened. I think it, it was just, okay, just someone tell me what's going on, you know. Um, so yeah, the, I spoke to them and then they have a lot of close friends in Australia who are really like family to us. So some friends of theirs came, came over to our house and, uh, and I was lucky. I had close friend, uh, Margie, was staying with me at the time. And um, it was just all very, very surreal. I had to cancel our plans for that night and I had to cancel plans for the next day. And I couldn't go and organize flights or anything until the next morning. So I think that we, I think we possibly, someone suggested contacting the, the Irish ambassador in, in Perth, which we did maybe. I don't think he was really any help at the time, but I think I think it was kind of someone said, oh, maybe he can organize flights quicker or something. But anyway, that didn't happen. I had to go the next morning and organize flights home. And we left then, at, we flew out that evening. And yeah, it was very strange. Like I, you know, I remember kind of going to bed and I had just finished, uh, I just had finished my exams a few days and a few days before. So I was in holiday mode and I was, I was meant to be going back anyway. Uh, you know, a few days, about 10 days later, and I was meant to be arriving back on my brother's birthday. So everything was booked, but I just had to kind of move flights, you know, uh, back so I could go straight away and so that Dara could come with me. So, you know, I remember kind of going to bed and uh, it sounds so ridiculous, but I, I, I had to, you know, I had put away all my books because I was on my holidays now, because in Australia, the, the year I was studying nursing at the time and the, the university year had just finished and I'd finished my exams and I was, delighted and just a few days before I had been out for breakfast with Dara and I'd been saying ah oh, you know my life is just perfect at the moment I've finished my exams that second year done I'm going home on holidays in a few days and I'm going to see everybody and it's all great and uh, and then next thing this happened you know but I remember going to sleep waking up during the night and you know you just wake up and it suddenly hits you that oh my god you know everything is awful what has happened and you know, I, I'm sure I probably didn't sleep that much. Um, but uh, yeah, so then we got uh, got flights booked for the following day, the day after he died. And that whole journey was, you know, a bit of a nightmare, really. Um, just tried to sleep, tried to read, to switch off. But I, I was I was reading a book at the time that I didn't finish and I've never been able to go back and finish because I, I couldn't uh, kind of, it, I just associated with that time, you know, but uh, yeah, I remember being very afraid of getting off the plane. I was dreading seeing my parents. You know, I really kind of thought that they would just fall apart. Um, you know, I didn't know how they would possibly be still standing and functioning and walking and talking and doing all the things that needed to be done. Um, but they did really, uh, you know, they met me at the airport and they were, you know, they were very together and for me that was a huge relief um, because I think somehow I thought that maybe I was going to have to come back and 
hold it together for everybody, you know, which was probably a little bit arrogant in retrospect. Uh, you know, I don't know why I thought I was going to be the one who would have to hold it together. Um, but yes, so they collected me and we drove back from the airport and they kind of filled me in and everything along the way. And, you know, of course, there are kind of, you know, ordinary life things that happen. We had to stop in Dunn's and Cornell's Court to get a, a tie or a suit jacket or something for my other brother to wear to the funeral. So these really ordinary things. And, you know, we got back to the house then and my parents just have an amazing capacity to hold it together. You know, they really, you know, tried to help me along and mm. my brother and... Do you think maybe they were still in shock? Probably. So like you, it hadn't really hit them at yeah. a certain level? Probably, yes, I think mm. so. I mean, it's so huge. You know, so we this do just was, go around like zombies functioning in a way. Yeah, yeah. And at that point, you know, there are so many other people coming into your home and so many people contacting you and needing to know what's happened that th they would have been holding it together a certain amount for that. Yeah. But they are, you know, I have to say they are just remarkable people. And, and I've constantly admired their kind of desire to just still try and make the most of their lives regardless of uh, or despite, I suppose, what happened. You know, um, mm. they really, they really did. But they have, a, a, you know, a very good network of friends, and you know, were kind of fairly well supported at work as well, both of them. So, mm. uh, you know, and they, they talk a lot, you know, and we talk about him a lot. And there was Over never the a, you know, don't mention, don't mention it yeah. or anything. It, he was always kind of talked about a lot. So, what was it like to lose your brother? Uh, it was terrible and shocking and devastating really and kind of a bit bizarre being away I think as well because I wasn't used to him being in my life every day anyway at that point you know I'd been away for you know I'd been away for a couple of years at that stage so I was not used to to having him around all the time which I think in some ways helped but in some ways made it harder uh, you know um, and it was very strange to go from being three of us to just two of us. Um, the whole dynamic, of course, changes in, in a family when one person's not there. How did it change between you and your other brother then, your surviving brother? Well, I mean, I suppose we're probably closer, um, but they were very close. So in some ways, I think that our relationships at the time had all changed quite a bit anyway because I was, I'd been living away for two years. My brothers at that time were kind of, they were very formative years for them, you know. So in, in, in that time they had changed quite a lot anyway, you know. Um, so I wouldn't say that I was hugely close to my other brother at the time, but we were really thrown in together in this situation of course. So we were close yes I think we were close mm. and I, I, ultimately it definitely <coughs> would have made us closer I guess would have brought us closer you know and in a family when a child dies the focus is often on the parents yes um, you hear this time and time again you know you've lost a member of your family yeah. you've lost your sibling you've lost your brother did you find that a lot of people said has your mom oh yeah or has your dad yeah all the time yeah. people did all the time and and, and people would say things like, oh, you know, it must be just, it must be just so horrendous for your parents. And, and of course it was, 
But you know, sometimes you know that was, I suppose, a little bit frustrating because, you know, it it, it felt in some ways like like people were kind of belittling your own, you, you know, my grief a little bit maybe by saying that, you know, yes, I mean, I knew it was worse for my parents. Of course, it has to be worse to lose your child, you know. But uh, you don't really need people to say that to you either. So you know that yourself. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It was minimizing yeah. your grief by focusing a little, on their grief. Yeah, even though it would yeah. never have been intended that way. But, yeah. you know, I mean, I think we all feel like the, you know, the worst thing has to be to lose a child, you know. And nowadays, I mean, we are much better about talking about grief and yeah. connecting and checking on each other and yeah. getting more comfortable sitting yeah. with difficult things. What was it like two decades ago um, amongst your peer group? Um, some people were very good with it and, and not afraid and, and, and not afraid to kind of get in there and say the things that were difficult or that were messy or that might uh, be the wrong thing. And then others, you know, would say nothing because they were afraid to say something or afraid to say the wrong thing. And so it was really difficult. And I found myself getting very, that was one thing that really kind of riled me if, if I met somebody and they didn't say anything. You know, because I felt like my whole world had changed and I had changed completely. Um, and when people would just act like nothing had happened, act the same, I, I, I couldn't bear it. I found that really, really difficult. Um, whereas the friends who, who were okay to talk about it, you know, I, I could do the small talk and the chit chat with those people because I knew if I needed to talk about something bigger, I could, you know, um, and that, that they always had it in the forefront of their minds that this awful thing had happened and that everything I did was in the context of this awful stuff that I was going through. And it is like that, isn't it? I mean, it, is, it, yeah. it colors your whole life and every yeah. aspect of your life. Yeah. I mean, your your entire system yeah. is affected by such a loss, such yeah. a traumatic and sudden loss, particularly as well. Mm. Everything has changed. Absolutely everything that you yeah. do is in the context of of that grief. Like mm. like what, Kath? What what had you know? What shape did your life take after after he died? Um, well, I stayed, uh, so I stayed back in Ireland for a couple of months because I had a couple of months off uni and that in itself was kind of, uh, you know, I was here in the thick of, you know, my parents' grief and, uh, and my brother, you know, we, we dealt with things quite differently, I suppose. We had different friends and different ways of doing things and we were a different age, you know, so at that, at that stage in our lives that made a difference. So my brother, my other brother turned 21. Uh, a few weeks after Tony died you know so there were things like that uh, he died and then we had uh, you know his birthday was then you know less than two weeks after he died and then my other brother's then we had Christmas and then we had my other brother's 21st and it was you know the it was you know the New Year's Eve 1999 which was the huge deal for everybody so there were all these things kind of one after the other that were that and, and those events kind of consumed us initially and I suppose when I was here I felt kind of cocooned and a little bit held because I was in, you know, in our hometown and, uh, you know, everybody knows everybody else and my parents would have been quite well known. So everybody knew what had happened, you know, and then I went back to Australia and my life went back to normal. But my, my close friends knew what had happened. But of course, you know, my lecturers at uni didn't know what had happened. I was on placements all the time in different hospitals trying to be normal when I didn't feel normal at all. And I, I remember thinking, I wish I had some kind of a card that said, by the way, 
you know, my brother has just died suddenly and I'm going through a horrendous time, so this is not the normal me, you know, that I could yeah. just give to people, which of course you can't do. But and what did not normal look like? I felt like, like my confidence, like my world had just kind of broken, so I felt like I had no confidence in myself anymore, whereas mm. I generally would have been fairly confident before. I, I, just, I felt, you know, little things upset me so much. Um, and, and I, you know, I was kind of going to new hospitals on placements every kind of four weeks, you know, and I, I would, you know, I would be awake during the night at three o'clock in the morning, you know, bawling my eyes out because I was, I didn't want to go somewhere new where I had to try and be, you know, you're really trying to make an effort. You're on a placement, you need to make an impression, you're trying to learn. And th that felt so huge, that effort. It was really difficult. Um, so perhaps if I'd been in a situation where I was just in a regular job where I knew everybody, it would have been very different. You know, it was unusual circumstances, but I got through it. Very know. unsettling, actually. It was yeah. very unsettling. I mean, yeah. grief is so unsettling anyway. Yeah. And often in grief, you know, our comfort zone shrinks. Yeah. And here you are being thrown out of your comfort zone every couple of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was really challenging, you know, and, and I guess in some ways being away, you know, the anonymity was good in some ways. I could kind of go out and try and forget about it a little bit. But at the same time, you know, nobody made allowances because nobody knew what you'd been through. Yeah. You know, I guess when you're in a in a in a, a small town, maybe where everybody knows what you've been through, people people do make allowances for you, you know, I guess, even if they mm. aren't acknowledging what's happened. Or, so what sort of trajectory did your grief take? Do you remember, you know, was there is was there a point you remember I need to do something about this or I need to do something differently or how did you help yourself? Um, I did at one point uh, feel, you know, when I, when I went back to Australia and I, I was very lonely and I, luckily I had my, my now husband who was great and sat up with me all hours of the morning, you know, while I cried my heart out. Um, I, I do recall at one point deciding I had to go and see somebody, but I didn't really know, I, I didn't really know much about going to, going to, for therapy or anything like that. I, so I, I was at university, as I said, and so I, I did go and make an appointment with the counsellor at the university, and I, I went in and I think I just cried for an hour and I, I was hardly able to speak. I just cried and cried, but I, I really didn't find her that helpful. And I don't, I think I went back one more time, maybe, you know, it was almost like it was too much for me to go to her and I expected too much maybe. Um, was that, that soon experience. after he had died? It would have been a few months, I okay. think, yeah. yeah. So you're still very much in acute raw grief yes, at that yeah, point. Yeah. I, I would say I really could have done with somebody a bit more capable than her, maybe. Uh, I mean, maybe she didn't know what to do with me. I was hardly able to talk when I went in. I was kind of a breaking point, I think. I probably could have done mm. with somebody more capable yeah. Um, because, you know, I suppose I was very conscious at the time of not, I did talk to my parents about my brother and it was always there, you know, but I, I didn't want to burden them either with, you know, I, I did, of course, sometimes I would ring and cry on the phone, but I didn't want to burden them with it either. They were going through their own. So you were containing your grief to a degree, but really yeah. needed a space where you didn't have to do that. Yeah. I mean, and I had some great, you know, family friends who were, you know, friends of my parents who were older than me and who knew my brother growing up and, you know, because we'd lived in Australia when we were younger. So those, they were really helpful. And I, you know, I, I, I had days where I would just, you know, 
rock up at their front door and you know spend a couple of hours talking and crying and, and that really really helped I mean talking always always helped and crying always helped and and I knew that there was some of it that I just had to just get through it yeah. you know you can't avoid it you just have to do it and feel it and you know um, what else can you do you've got to just keep on going and and hope that it gets easier over and, time and did it get easier over time yes. for you it did get easier I mean I don't think uh, you know I, I miss him just as much now as I did you know six months after he died you know but uh, and I still I, I don't have a day that I don't think about him and my family talk about him really regularly um, but I think you, you kind of get used to it in a way you know you get used to the grief mm. you know and you in a way you get used to somebody not being there it does get easier yes and it's a, it's a really important point you get used to it yeah you don't get over it no you don't, don't get, get through it. it you know you get over you you get used to it you accommodate yeah. it absolutely you just yeah. find a place for it yeah in your heart because you don't no I don't think you ever get over it you just get used to it you know and it does get easier because you get used to it um, but yes I definitely don't think you ever get over it and I'm curious Kath Tony died 20 years ago yeah what made you write an article this year um gosh I don't know I really don't know it just it just came into my head that I would like to write about it and then it it took on you know kind of a life of its own and I actually just sat down and wrote it all in one go and um, I don't know what came over me maybe moving back to Ireland and being here uh, you know I've been back for nearly two years now and I suppose there's con a lot more constant reminders of him and uh, you know people his friends and people who we've been in contact with who, who were who he had contact with and um, and everywhere that I look there are reminders because we grew up here um, so even 20 years later moving back home shifted your relationship to your grief again yeah probably mm. probably in a good way though uh, I suppose it's comforting in some ways I when I'm here I, I, I see things that have a lot of you know memories and, and meaning attached to him mm. but in saying that I, I had that in Australia too because we spent some of our childhood there as well but I you know here feels like here is where it happened and you know here feels more like where he is I guess you know most of those memories are here and mm. and I guess with my parents being here as well. And you mentioned earlier you know you wrote the article and you submitted it and then you thought what have I done? Well I just felt really exposed but I didn't really start thinking that until the night before it was actually due to be published. I kind of felt okay about it until then and then the night before I started feeling really really antsy and kind of thinking what's going on what's wrong with me and then I th and the next morning I, I I went out and bought the paper and I, I couldn't even look at it I couldn't look the f I had a glance at the photo it was huge and I just I had to close it I couldn't read it in the paper I couldn't look at it I felt you know really naked mm. and um, I was really regretting it you know and then my my mom phoned me and, and she had bumped into somebody who had lost somebody you know quite recently and said to her you know I read that this morning and it was really just what I needed to read and so then even that I, I just made me feel so much better I just thought you know if if one person reads it and it helps them 
yeah. you know, makes them feel a bit better or makes them realize it's going to be all right, you know, uh, then that's fine. That's enough for me. And then I had, you know, I had lots of messages throughout the day uh, from people saying similar things. So mm. I, I then I was I was glad I had done it. But I suppose I just realized, you know, kind of naively after it was published that, you know, I had just written about this worst time of my life, really, you know, and I'd kind of put it out there for everyone or anyone to read. Um, but like I say, I'm glad now that I did, yeah. but I, I, I felt very exposed. And, and that says such a lot about our culture and how we deal with or don't deal with grief that, you know, we could write something so personal and intimate but also normal, you know, yeah. grief is a part of life, but yet it feels so exposing and vulnerable to do that. And I'm wondering, like, what do we need to do to normalize grief a little bit more yeah. so that we can say, this is my experience and, you know, not have that feeling of exposure or too much or too much disclosure. Yeah. You know, what do you think about that, about society and how we really do save our intimate experience of grief for only a certain small percentage of people close to us. Do you think we should do that differently? Should we, I don't know, be more courageous about sharing our grief? Or is it fear that <coughs> people won't meet it or we won't be held in our grief? What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that there's always some relief to be found in sharing. Um, and talking about things but I suppose it's it feels very private as well because you are just so wounded and so mm. vulnerable you know you're so it's so easy to be upset or hurt or or to get angry when you are just mm. so raw you know you've already just been hurt so terribly that it would be very easy for someone else to you know for you to share something and somebody to not meet it as you said or to to belittle it in some way. Or come out with a euphemism or a platitude yeah. or a silver lining to your grey cloud. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Which feels, literally feels like a smack in the face when somebody does that. Yeah. Um, because, uh, you know, it's just so huge. And, and often people don't mean that, but, yeah. uh, you know, maybe they've it's, never been through something themselves. It's or, very primal. And I, I love that you use the word wounded. It's something that I often use in my practice when people are saying, that they are so vulnerable and they're so sensitive and maybe fighting with everyone around them at work or, yeah. you know, fighting with people at home or not feeling like anyone can meet them. And I think often in grief, we are like a very wounded animal. It's like our skin has been peeled off us exactly. and we've no protection. And what does a wounded animal do when somebody reaches in? You know, we bite or we right. we scratch out at them, yeah. and we're 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 trying to prevent further wounding. And I think it's important um, for us to know that that, you know, when we say things like "Oh, you've an angel in heaven now," or "Isn't it great he didn't suffer?" or we find the silver lining, we're pushing people further away from us. That's right. You know. That's right. I mean, I I would have wanted to scream if somebody said those kind of things to me and and, people and what did. they said yeah. yes occasionally yeah yeah you know um, and it's funny because you know somebody who you talk to a lot about it you know I might say myself oh well you know I am really glad that he didn't suffer and that it was a 
that it was quick and he really probably didn't know what was going on you know but for somebody else and a close friend might say that to me and that would be okay but if somebody I didn't know very well said to me oh well you know isn't it great that he didn't suffer I I probably would have wanted to you know smack them in the face even though it would have been very well intentioned yeah Um, because the pain of it all hasn't been acknowledged first yeah that's right yeah Yeah. and that's a really good point actually because we can never put meaning on someone else's grief yeah you know a positive meaning or a negative meaning but if somebody else does that about their own grief if that's the meaning that they've come up with themselves that's fine that's okay but it's yes. not up to us to say well you've an angel in heaven or that's right you know whatever mm. we, we really have to be guided by the bereaved person yeah and and often it's the bereaved person or the person in pain who not only are they in pain but suddenly they have to educate everyone around them of what it's like, what it feels like, how it is to be grieving and how we need them, we need other people to respond to us. Yeah. Did you find you had to do a lot of explaining to people what it was like for you? Uh, yes, I suppose so. Um, you know, or sometimes, unless it was someone close who I really felt like I could talk to, I just wouldn't explain and I would maybe just, you know, shut up about it and and sit back and be quiet because I, you know, I, I couldn't maybe pretend to be something I wasn't or to be fine when I wasn't, you know, yeah. unless I was, say, you know, when I was on placements for my studies, you know, where you kind of had to just get on with things or fail. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but in social situations, I think, yeah, it, you, you do kind of feel a need maybe to explain why you are the way you are, you know, and sometimes, it was hard if you're out and you kind of felt like everyone else had just forgotten about your pain and you're there and you want to have a good time but you just can't and you know everybody else is just getting on with things and uh, you know what can you do you just gotta be the miserable person Mm. in the corner sometimes and 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 you know usually friends will kind of realize pretty quickly i guess that that you're in that situation um and the the importance there of an appropriate response because like we're all in relationship with each other all the time. You know, that's mm. the, we're all in relationship. Even if you're not talking to someone, you're still in relationship yes. with them and your silence is how you're relating. Yeah. And I think, you know, often as a bereavement therapist, people come and they have this devastating experience that's happened in their lives and someone that they love has died. Often a lot of the pain that's brought is how their husband isn't supporting them or their sister doesn't get it or their friends just aren't talking about it so we have this situation where you have a primary loss a primary grief but all these little secondary losses all serve to either exacerbate the grief and make it worse or people who just get it who just show up who'll just sit there and be with you they can ease your grief yeah and i think it's a really good message to get out there you know who are you? Yeah. Are you the one who's easing it for someone or exacerbating it for someone? Yeah. You know? I mean, I used to think sometimes that my anger at people who, you know, who said really inappropriate things or said nothing at all, that in some ways, maybe I, I was using them as a bit of a channel for, you know, they were something to get angry at. I could reasonably get angry at that, you know, or annoyed at that when really I was angry that I was in this situation at all, you know, um, and, and they were maybe the unfortunate you know, recipients, yeah. you know, or well, in my head, they were the recipients. I didn't usually say it out loud. Um, 
so some of it's maybe mis you know misdirected or misplaced anger you know but you know thinking back and and now whenever anyone i know goes through a loss like that i i really think that the most important thing for people is just just acknowledging like just acknowledging your pain and just it's better to just say oh, i'm i'm sorry you know i don't know what to say what can i do is there anything i can do or you know instead of you know you know trotting out little kind of trite you know condolences it which people, a lot of people have a tendency to do and, and that's understandable of course well, we're well. nervous yeah. and maybe we don't know any better yeah. and we say something and then maybe regret it or of course and I'm sure not. I've done that too myself <laughs> yeah you know um, yeah you know the other thing is I think I, I remember at the time uh, you know not long after he died I think you know we can be so wrapped up in our own grief that a friend you know I, I remember a friend saying I was talking to a friend and you know she said something about it, it how at that point i think it was maybe two years since her dad had died and uh i just all of a sudden thought oh my gosh yes you know she's actually gone through this awful thing you know it's a different situation but an awful situation too and and she's okay now and and it was really it was i've been so wrapped up in my own grief that i almost forgot that other people actually go through this as well and they're okay and it was really reassuring to me to see her and and to hear her talk and that she was okay and funnily enough I remember chatting to her and thinking I can really do the small talk with her because I know that I can also do the other talk if I want to and yeah. I know that she knows how I'm feeling you know um, yeah. you talked about um, when Dara came in to break the news to you how your initial the emotion that came to you was fear yeah you know and your heart was pounding and you felt this fear and you know you're talking about the anger of people not getting it or yeah. not acknowledging it was there anything else that surprised you about grief? Because often people think, oh, it's sad. You know, mm. someone has died, it's sad, and then they'll stop being sad. But grief is actually, you know, a huge range of emotions and no particular order, often mixed up together. Yeah. Fear being a very um, predominant one and anger often as well. Yeah. Uh, the fear, I think, was a big one at the beginning, but that was kind of fear of the pain of it. You know, uh, um, fear, anger, sadness. Um, gosh, I mean, I did feel like I went through kind of every emotion in the book, you know, really. And and then probably went through a lot of them again later on when we, you know, realized why he had died and that we had this condition that kind of brought lots of things back up again. But I, I think, you know, I think what surprised me was in previous years, when I'd been studying way back when I finished school, I had done, you know, I'd written an essay on, uh, you know, um, grief and, you know, mainly looking at the whole Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, oh. which, you know, really, of course, is actually more to do with terminal illness and everything. And um, what surprised me was that I could go through all of these things in one day and back to the beginning again, even in an hour, and that actually there wasn't really any pattern. I mean, I did over time. Like I said, it did get easier and I did get better, but that was that was in such small kind of increments that it was you couldn't yeah. see that from day to day. You know, so what surprised me was that I could have so many emotions in such a short space of time and I could be fine. And then next thing I could be absolutely devastated and feeling like I was falling into a hole that I wasn't going to be able to get out of because, you know, because of something I heard on the radio or because of 
the way someone looked at me or because I saw someone who looked like my brother or like my mom or like someone, you know, who, who was close to me in the situation. So yeah. that, that surprised me, just the absolute chaos of it, that there wasn't really any pattern no. that I could see. And it's good you bring it up, you know, because a lot of people still go by the stages of grief. Yeah which was, they were never meant to be stages yes. of grief at all. It was for terminally yeah. ill patients yeah. coming to terms with, you know, a terminal diagnosis um, and people have run riot with them and yeah. tried to apply them left, right and centre. Yeah, I think and I was maybe 18 when I wrote that essay and I, I really yeah. had had kind of no idea, you know, and so, but it, it, it stuck in my head, yeah. of course. And um, yeah, so th that was surprising, just the chaos of it, that it was chaotic and totally totally unpredictable and in in that acute grief Kath was there anything that brought you relief I know this is a question people often come to me with I want tools to yeah. not feel this bad um, I want you know what can I do give me a formula to take this mm. off me or to <clears throat> lessen the pain of this mm. um, and, and we know there you know there are certain things that can help support us in our grief mm. but there's nothing that can take away our grief yeah we can only support people through it you know um, what do you think supported you through your grief I think probably the thing that would have helped me most was just talking and crying you know I would have a kind of a build-up of you know maybe I'd been holding it together all day on a, on a shift in a hospital with people I didn't know or at uni through lectures and 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 you know there would just be this build up of emotion so either going home myself having a really good cry or going to a friend and talking um and probably the friends who I did that mainly with were the like I said the kind of older friends of my parents who were more kind of maternal kind of figures I guess who 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 didn't have who you know would have had some element of grief of course because they were family friends but who who weren't like my parents in, in their grief, obviously. Who, so I could kind of talk and cry and talk and cry for a couple of hours. And yeah. and that always helped. You know, it did always help. I mean, I might be back in the same position the next day, but, you know, it really helped, I think. To know that just there's to get somebody else there. Yeah. yeah, and just to get it out, yeah. whether it was with my, you know, partner or a friend or whatever, just talking and crying. Yeah. And, and Kath, do you think, are there certain themes um, associated with losing a sibling that that are different to other types of grief? Uh, I don't know really. Um, I suppose no matter where you are in the family, whether you're a parent or a child, there's the family dynamic changes. You know, uh, I mean, you mentioned only seven years ago finding out that you have this gene yeah so how does that affect your relationship with life and how you approach life yeah um well that you know that was really kind of shocking again and kind of brought back a whole lot of uh, a whole lot of stuff because of course you know he died very suddenly and um, i think when it's a sibling or someone younger than us or a peer yeah. or a friend maybe what that does and i don't know if this is true for you it can bring up our own death anxiety yes or a sense of our own mortality oh absolutely I more so than if it's a parent or an, yes. an older generation definitely most definitely um you know and i think for anyone involved his friends or me and my other brother you know any of us younger people 
it's shocking when someone your own age or mm. younger dies. I mean, it's, you know, I, I certainly would have gone through phases in my life where I would think a lot about my mortality anyway. Um, but if, I think if you haven't, it's, it's incredibly shocking. And even if you have, it's shocking. So, you know, certainly it did, uh, it did make me think about it more. And at the time, you know, we didn't know why he died. But of course, I went through kind of, you know, well, could this have been me or my other brother? I mean, this, what is this? Like, it could have been any of us. And uh, I didn't have, you know, any children at the time or anything like that. But it was possibly later when I was a parent myself then that I started thinking more about it. And um, my son was seven when we found out about the, the condition and were able to kind of give it a name. But certainly, even before that, I thought a lot about it when I became a parent, a, a lot about the, was there any risk for me? And, and also, I suppose, just, you know, every parent has that fear of something happening to their child. So I, I did worry already for me and for my son. Um, but, you know, apparently was kind of told at the time that that was needless worry. But of course, it didn't turn out to be needless worry. <laughs> and where are you with it all now, Kath? What's your relationship with, to Tony like now? Uh, I mean, I still, I, like I said, I think about him every day and I still, you know, songs will come on the radio and I'll have a bit of a cry. Um, or I see somebody who, you know, makes me think of him and I have, you know, it upsets me. I mean, I, I, when we moved back to Ireland, my son started guitar lessons with Tony's old guitar teacher. And that was, uh, you know, he, my brother had a really lovely relationship with, with this man. And that was, you know, I actually found that quite an emotional uh, experience then, you know, having him, my son, having that connection with him as well. Um, but look, I, you know, I'm... Has your son never met his uncle, obviously? No, yeah. no. But he, he's, you know, he's, we've always talked about him. So he's asked a lot about him from a very young age. And he, from, from a very young age, he would talk about him almost as if he was around you know, because there were lots of photos of him and my family, as I said, would talk about him lots and be very mm. open about it. Um, and so it's interesting, that notion of a child who's never met a deceased family member mm. can still miss them. Yeah. You know, they can miss the older brother that died before they were born yeah. or miss the uncle. You know, I know my own son often asks about his grandmother who yeah. he never met and gets quite upset that he never yeah. met her. Absolutely. <laughs> this he is an important figure. Yeah, he used to ask me, well, why, why can't I ring him? Can I talk to him on the phone? You know, and can he hear me? And, mm. I, you know, um, how did you explain death to him? Well, I can't really remember exactly how. I mean, he was probably, you know, two when he started asking about, uh, you know, about his Uncle Tony. And he, you know, he, <laughs> I mean, he, he used to ask, ask things like, well, you know, is he with Elvis? or you know whoever he was into at the time um i can't really remember because we're not you know we're not uh, you know particularly religious or anything i don't really know what i said except that he wasn't here anymore and how do you talk about death with him now he's 12 isn't that right he's 13. 13. yeah uh i guess we i'm quite open about just not knowing really if there is anything else um you know, maybe maybe there is a heaven, and you know, I, I'm really just very open about the the not knowing, which is yeah. kind of scary, really. I mean, it, I often feel like it would be much easier if uh, if we did have 
a very firm belief in something, you know. But I think children are probably a lot more accepting than than us, and we expect them maybe to think the same things or ask the same questions that we do about it all when they actually can be quite accepting of of what what they don't know of the unknown. Mm. Um, yeah, you know. But he would he would say things like, "Well, you know, do you think?" Do you think Uncle Tony would have loved would love me, and you know things like that? And and I know my nieces now, you know my sister-in-law sent me a, a picture recently of a drawing that one of my nieces had done, and and she had a picture. You know Uncle Tony was in the in the drawing. So it's interesting. I so think he's children still are part very, of the family. Yeah, and I yeah. think really children are are yeah. really quite accepting of that. That's mm. you know it's not a not that it's not a big deal for them, but they they accept it, mm. which. And how do you think, Kath, your early experience of grief, losing Tony, I mean, you're a young woman, how do you think it might affect future losses for you? Or, or will it, do you think? Oh, oh. I'm, I'm sure it will. I mean, I, I remember for a long time afterwards thinking, I, I will not be able to cope if something else happens now, if something happens, you know, to one of my parents now. Or, mm. But, you know, of course, you know, we do cope because we have to. There's nothing else you can do. I mean... You know, I certainly would have thought before that, oh, I couldn't cope, you know, if, if, if something happened to someone in my family. But you have to cope. There's no choice, really. Like, the alternative is to, you know, curl up somewhere and, you know, die yourself. But, you, you know, you have to just deal with things. This is, that's, it's part of life, you know. And I remember thinking at the time, even on my way home from the airport when I arrived back to Ireland, I remember thinking, okay, well, this has happened now and, you know, it's terrible. And uh, I wish it happened to somebody else, but you know it's us, and there's no reason why it should be somebody else other than us. But I also thought, you know, there's no going back from this now. There's only ever going to be more loss and more grief, and and that might sound depressing, but I mean I think it's just real. You know that that is the nature of life when you yeah. love people and you lose people, and um, it is that realization when you have your first big loss. Yeah. Yeah, life is different now. Yeah, and it doesn't go back. You don't go it back. It doesn't from go this, back. You know, it doesn't you, go back. You, it just happens again. And I yeah. don't. I don't imagine that losing one person you love makes losing another person you love any easier. I imagine yeah. it probably just compounds it. You know, so I, I think it's a really good point you're making there as well about how life is different and it doesn't go back because I've talked to people, you know, who've gone through a bereavement or even a divorce or a separation, and you are so shattered in every way from those kind of experiences and you think oh I'll be fine in six months you know yeah. just get through this and I'll be fine and then six months comes and you think well I'll just get through Christmas and then I'll be fine and then you get through that and you're maybe still not quite all right and well let's wait till it's been a year then I'll be fine and then there's a certain realization I'm not going back to that person ever yeah. actually this is the new me and I just need to get used to this. Yeah. And at a certain point, ideally, our nervous systems do start to settle, you know, and, and more space becomes available inside us. Whereas at the beginning, we're full of grief or trauma, or whatever it is we're going through. Yeah. It slowly starts to settle, but it's always there. Absolutely. Yeah. And then at certain points, you know, the jar is shook. Yeah. And it fills us again, maybe That's on right, yeah. a birthday or an anniversary or a court case or whatever it is we're That's going right. through. I think you learn to accommodate it, yeah. you know, but it stays there. And, you know, 
I mean, I was just talking to my son today in the car. We were talking about difficult things that happen and how, you know, they're difficult. I think we were talking about Doctor Who and being able to wipe memory, you know, and I was, <laughs> I was saying, you know, do you think it would be good to be able to wipe painful memories? And he said, no, I don't think so. Um, because, you know, if, and this was nothing to do with our conversation today, we weren't talking about this, but he said, I don't think so because, you know, if, you, if, if someone you love dies and you were to wipe that painful memory, then you'd be wiping that person from your life, you mm. know, and... Um, Very wise 13-year-old. Yeah, you know, but, and I think that's true. I mean, I also, you know, I was saying how we grow from everything that happens and, and the painful things often are the ones that make us grow the most. And, and I wish that my brother was still here and still alive, but, at, you know, he's not. And I have learned a lot from that experience and it changed me and shaped me. And mm. um, it's... And, and I imagine news of his death is an excruciating memory and very painful. I'm wondering, do you, have you come to a place where you think, look back at Tony and remember, you know, things together from your childhood? where you experience love and joy or is the pain always there are they always together i think they're no it's not always painful now it's kind of poignant and and a bit sad when i think back on memories but i you know i can certainly look back on all those memories in our childhood and, and see a lot of laughs and feel a lot of joy when i think of those things and i'm just you know constantly grateful for the relationship that we had mm. um, but there's always there's always it's always tinged with a little yeah. bit of sadness of course and that's a process as well to yeah. get there you can't just there isn't a magic pill that will turn your no. pain into positive memories or joyful that's memories right. it's you have to go through the difficult ones that's too. right and I think it's also it's always going to be a bit sad when I'm 80 mm. and he would have been 74 I'm still going to be a bit sad that he's not sitting there you know, or that I didn't get to see him grow old. I will always be sad about it, but not in a way that I need to cry all the time. Every time I think about it, I can yeah. talk about him, we can laugh and tell funny stories and, you know, without anyone getting upset. Um, yeah. But, you know, I will always feel a bit sad, of course, that he, you know, that I, I didn't see him grow old or that he didn't know my son or, you know, a, a million other things that I could think yeah. of. You know? So writing the article, Kath, which came out just six weeks ago or two months ago has that settled your grief or do you feel there's more in you that needs to come out around it um it was i think it was quite cathartic writing the article mm. just putting it down on paper even though it really felt quite brief for me because there's so I, 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 there's probably so much more about it that i could write i was kind of condensing it really Mm. Um, so there's probably a lot more that I could say about it. I mean, it felt like such a long and complex process yeah. for me at the time, you know, and, and like you say, it's ongoing. It's, you know, forever, you're, you're, for your whole life, you're dealing with that change and that loss. Um, so it was, uh, it was quite cathartic, I think, to write it. And um, yes, which is surprising really in a way, you know, when it's been 20 years almost. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if there's somebody listening to this who has lost a sibling recently, what would you say to them? Oh, I would say I'm sorry because it's a horrible, awful, sad, devastating thing to go through and and life will never be the same, but you will mm. be okay. You know, it it does get easier and you learn to live with it. Um 
you know, when I see people at the beginning of that journey and I, I just feel like I just want to wrap them up and, and, and say it'll be all right eventually, but there's no easy way. There's no easy way out of it or through it. You have to just talk and cry and, and live with it and live in it. There's no way around it, but it does get better over time. Mm. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to put a link to your Irish Times article in the podcast description and really recommend to anybody listening to have a read of that. And thank you for sharing your experience. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to hear about your relationship to Tony and your relationship with your grief. And it's just so important that people speak out. You know, yes. it's so important because it is such a lonely, frightening, or it can be such a lonely, frightening, isolating experience. And, you know, my wish for this podcast is twofold, that those who are grieving can listen and go, oh, my God, I feel like a wounded animal. It's not just me. This this is a thing that happens. Yeah. But also for other people who maybe haven't experienced a loss, that they will get better insight into what grief can do to us and how we can support yes. our loved ones when they are grieving. So you've given us great insight and shared a lot of wise experience with us. So oh, well, good. thanks if for it that. It helps anybody. That's wonderful. I mean, we all go through it. Everybody is going to lose somebody at some point. I mean, I don't think anybody gets through their life, you know, without it. Yeah. You know, so it is just part of the human condition, and we have to be able yeah. to be open with each other about it and to reach out and. You know, even if we don't know what to say, take the blinkers off, you know, because yeah. I think a lot of us who haven't had the grief experience, we are going around with blinkers on even any kind of difficult experience. Yeah. If it's not our lived experience, sometimes we're very quick to dismiss it. Yeah. You know, and I know Kira Kelly, who was a guest on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, you know, she'd worked as a GP for X amount of years and thought she understood grief. And then she said when her father died, suddenly like she said, she was not prepared for the, I think she said a truckload of grief. And she thought, oh my God, this is so much worse than I ever thought. Yes. And I think I said it in that conversation with Kira, my own sister-in-law, who's a GP. Um, her mother died last year and she, she's got to over 50 yeah. without experiencing, yeah. experiencing a significant loss, yeah. yet working with bereaved people all the time. And she looked at me one day and she said, I had no clue. Yeah. You know, so yeah. I'd say to people listening, you know, you're 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 blessed if you haven't experienced it yes, yet. And absolutely. it will come. Equip yourself. Yeah. You know, equip yourself for the inevitable. Yeah. We will lose siblings and parents. God forbid, sometimes children. Mm. We will experience losses. We will have breakdowns in our marriages that we're not expecting. We might lose a breast. We might lose a uterus. We you know, we might not get the baby from IVF that we've been yeah. trying for over a decade. We all will experience significant loss in our lives and listen in, learn about loss mm. so that you're better prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Kath, thanks a million. Thank you. All right. so much for listening to this episode of Shapes of Grief. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical or psychological advice. If your grief is making you unwell, please do go to your healthcare provider.
Grief is a normal part of being human. You are not alone. Join the Shapes of Grief community in our private Facebook group and find more support and useful links on shapesofgrief.com. Until the next time, from me, Liz Gleeson, stay well.